Hello, and welcome to Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely deep literary merit, with your classy and sophisticated hosts, Alexandra Rowland, Freya Mosk, and Jennifer Mace. On this episode, we're answering a cornucopia of questions submitted by our darling listeners. What would entice Alex to climb into a windowless van? Does Freya get around to explaining her interest in arrogant asshole lieges? What self-insert fanfic would Macy write in the year of our Lord 2018? Settle in, get comfy, and take a fucking sip, babe. Hello, and welcome to the episode 10 extravaganza. I'm Alex, and I have a question for you, listeners. What's your most hilarious or heartwarming fandom experience? I'm Freya. And my question is, which book did you borrow from the library as a child so many times that your parents got a bit concerned about you? Or did you read over and over until the spine was more folds than text? And I'm Macy, and I'm the one who wants to know all y'all's uh, favourite magic system, either that you'd love to be in or that you adored hearing about from afar. We are three redheaded fantasy authors who would love you to tweet us with your answers to one or all of these questions, because we're not going to do all the work this week. Because this week we are answering a cornucopia of wonderful questions submitted by you, darling listeners. But first, I also have a question for my beauteous co-hosts, and that is, what are we reading, fellow servants? I am currently in between books, but I just finished reading Heroin Complex by Sarah Kuhn. It's the first book in a trilogy of sort of urban fantasy superhero books about Asian-American superheroes in a fantasy San Francisco. It is full of feelings and like sparkles and cupcakes and sisters <laughs> and like people fighting things in amazing heels. It was just heaps of fun. So I would recommend it. Oh, nice. I have just finished reading An Enchantment of Ravens by Margaret Rogerson, which is a YA fairy book, and you know how I love fairies. Uh, but specifically, the fairies in this follow a lot of the rules that we're familiar with. They can't tell a lie, they have to be very polite, but they're just so utterly alien and like hollow inside and creepy, and sometimes they dissolve into piles of rotting bark and maggots, and it's amazing. I love it. That sounds like a very you kind of book. It's peak me. <laughs> Uh, the timeline for this is a little weird because we're recording this episode 10 before episode 9. So in real time, in real life, I just finished reading Space Opera by Kat Valente and it was incredible and I highly recommend it. <laughs> but by the time that this episode actually comes out, I probably will have started and or finished reading Last Call at the Nightshade Lounge by Paul Kruger, who is one of my agent siblings. Yeah. So... Let's just jump right into the amazing questions that we got. We got so many great questions from so our many. darling, beautiful listeners. I was like, honestly, guys, like I was expecting us to get like eight questions total. And we got <laughs> so many of them. We actually, unfortunately, probably won't be able to answer all of them. We had to uh, pick some of our favorites. Uh, so if we didn't answer your question this week, I'm so sorry. We do love and value all of them, but we only have an hour or so to answer questions. So the first question, Toebreaker on Tumblr asks, what do you think your or your co-host's demon would be and why? <laughs> this is such a good question. <gasps> yes. Does, does anyone want to start or shall I? I think you were going to tell us what you thought ours were. Yes. Yes. I think we decided to answer this question 
uh, the suggested way, which was, what are your co-host demons? Because I think that's more interesting to talk about what we think each other is like rather than what we think ourselves are like. Uh, so I think that Macy would be either a liar bird or a chameleon uh, because Macy is very good at sort of adjusting her approach hmm. to depending on what social situation she's in. Uh, she's very good at adapting to communicate best with the person who's in front of her. So either one of those, I think, would be extremely suitable. And for Freya, it's a little bit trickier because Freya is very reserved and independent and intellectual. And so the first thing that springs to mind is cats, but like everybody has a cat demon. And I think Freya is much more special than that. <laughs> so maybe something like a cool Australian snake, even though that's kind of also cliche because of like the whole serpent thing whatever i was wondering if there were i couldn't remember from canon are there particularly associated with doctors any particular demons oh snakes would potentially be associated with doctors because of the what's its thing the catacheus thing. yes the the, yes. The, the stick with the snake on it yes the catacheus <laughs> it's a stick listen, listen don't take this way it's a stick with a snake on it that doctors wave at people and that's how medicine happens yes does it you found out the secrets. Ah, well, that's clearly witchcraft, because how else do you get two snakes to get along wrapped around a very small stick? Macy, please, respect my brand. I'm the one who says witchcraft about things. Please. But if you see two snakes wrapped around one another, they're probably having sex. So this kind of... So now I have a question as to, is that what these snakes are doing, or are they just confused by the stick and oh, attempting no. a threesome? It's a threesome. It's a threesome. It's, we have decided... It's a threesome. <laughs> Faye's demon is is two snakes attempting to have a threesome with a stick on brand. I love it. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, I'm I'm super glad. Two we... two snakes and their <laughs> blow up sex doll. There we go. Their sex aid because their marital aid. Yes. Yeah, there you there go. We are. Does anyone else want to talk about fucking demons in this episode? I mean, Freya, Freya does indeed have fucking demons. Um, Jesus. Can you imagine trying to explain that to your parents if that's what your demon settles into? Early <laughs> puberty? Fucking sex. Lovely. Oh well, Alex, we should pick. Hey, Freya, want to help me pick one for Alex? Yes. Well, first of all, I have to say I agree with Alex about Macy having a kind of changeable or camouflage demon. And honestly, when I thought about this, I thought, can you have a demon that is a tree? And the answer was no. So I thought possibly, I thought one of those really cool moths or stick insects that can camouflage themselves as plants. Yes, yes. I was just about to say the same. Yeah. Like one of those leaf insects. Yeah. That would be amazing. I would love a fluffy moth. That would yeah. also be that would be amazing for Macy. Yeah. Okay, so Macy, what do we think about Alex? So I can go two ways with Alex, right? Because either you emphasize like the dramatic sides of her personality, mm -hmm. and you go for like a peacock. I literally wrote peacock on my piece of paper. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I wrote peacock question mark or a really unnecessarily gorgeous bird of paradise. Yes, or you go for something that is kind of slinky and lethal, mm. which I feel is also on brand. Right? Yeah. So like a black panther or something like uh, a fox, you know? Mm. Yeah, I could go either something way. Something slinky and predatory. I'm I'm sitting here just silently beaming <laughs> because I'm holding my, my assessment until the end. All right. Who hasn't done whom at this point? I think we've pretty much done everybody. Does anybody want to awesome. leap in and argue? Oh, Macy, you haven't you haven't uh, done Freya yet, I think, right? 
But she's she's a threesome <laughs> of snakes. We oh, that's right. You that. were agreeing with me. Okay. Okay. Cool. I mean, I okay. I, I could like what I was thinking was basically what animals are kind of caretakers and healers, or what animals like you were kind of dignified and have their shit together. Yeah. So I was actually thinking though this would be the worst demon. I'm really sorry for the rest of your life. Um, was like an elephant. Because hmm. they really care for each other and they are really smart and they have their shit together as far as animals go. Yeah. But yes, yeah. it would be a pain in the ass. Yeah, it would. I don't know that I can see Freya with something that large because Freya Freya is more like because she's so reserved, she doesn't take up that much space. But elephants don't want to take up space either. It's really funny when you watch them. Interesting, interesting. Mm. So the next part of this question, I think, is that we discuss whether our co-hosts were correct in their assessment. And I have to say, you guys said fox and you said peacock, which are <laughs> the two demons that I have always sort of <laughs> imagined for myself. So well done. Very nice. I think I think either or both of those would be very me. Mm -hmm. I have never had any luck trying to pick out a demon for myself, but I would probably have gone for something more along the lines of small and unassuming in that, like, the thing that it is is camouflage. Mm. Not that it is a thing that does camouflage, but that, like, you see someone with, like, a shrew demon and you don't worry about them. Okay. I'm just remembering how Lyra used to get away with things with making her demon small and sneaky. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I kind of I kind of like the stick insect or the leaf insect for you because That's that kind of would fit in, right? I think so. Yeah, you would okay. underestimate someone with an insect demon. <laughs> yeah. And Freya, what do you think of how we assessed you? Well, honestly, I have always, from the word go, thought I would have a, a bird demon. Mm -hmm. uh, and the one that I have always thought about would be a very small bird of prey, like something like a small <gasps> kestrel or falcon. Yes. Mm, uh, so cute. But second on the list was something like a cheetah, because I do like the big cats, but not like the really big ones, more like the sort of small slinky ones. Yeah. But obviously I was completely wrong, and it's all about snake <laughs> threesomes from here on. It's, there we go. <laughs> Glad we fixed that for you. All right, so moving on to the next question. Anonymous asks, kindly categorize the following male TV disaster bisexuals by house. And I'm assuming we're talking... Hogwarts Sorting Hat Chats kind of house. Jack Harkness, Jake Peralta, and Mei Chang Su. Yes! <laughs> what an excellent collision of everything we like talking about. That is an excellent collision. So I would say that, shall we take these one by one? No, let's take these chaos by chaos. <laughs> chaos by chaos. All right. Well, I think that Jack Harkness would be a Gryffindor primary and a Slytherin secondary. Jake Peralta is... I think a double Gryffindor. Yeah, I'd agree to that. And I don't know Mei Cheng Su well enough to, or at all, really, other than what you guys have said, so I can't sort. Uh, I, I would actually fight you already over Jack Harkness. Fight me. I will, because I don't see him as being a Slytherin secondary. I see him as being a Gryffindor secondary. He's all about charging into things. He has <laughs> the ability to behave a little bit Slytherin sometimes, but it's not his first approach to things. And he uses it most when he's really burned. Yeah. Okay. So what would you say his primary is? Oh, his primary is Griff, for sure. Like, I agree with you okay. there. But the yeah. secondary is what I'm talking about. I do see it. Oh, 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 I see. You can contrast that with Jake Peralta, who is, I think I would agree, is a pure 
Gryffindor, Gryffindor primary, Gryffindor mm -hmm. secondary, and you can see that when he attempts to use other houses as his secondary and just it doesn't work <laughs> at <Yeah>. all. <laughs> He's a, and, and you know, there's an element of Slytherin to his sort of ability to improvise wildly, but it's not strategic, it's more sort of just mm. throwing himself at things and hoping for the best, and it usually works. And so for Mei Chang Su, I think of him as a Slytherin primary motivated by this ridiculously deep well of loyalty. Yes, I would agree. He's very specific. Yeah, he, he's very, everything is about his people and in fact his one person, really, throughout the whole series. And he does some really terrible things based on the strength of that motivation. And I would see him as a Slytherin secondary, as an adaptive, concealing kind of secondary. But I think, Freya, you disagreed? Yeah, I think he has more of a Ravenclaw secondary because if you think about his approach to how he achieves his goals, he spent all, you know, years and years and years carefully, carefully plotting and coming up with how he was going to take down individual people and, you know, the best way to deal with this. And he was all about long-term strategy. He does have some ability to improvise. So he has that, uh, some of the Slytherin ability, but also I think his Ravenclaw secondary I would say is him having modeling a, a Ravenclaw to the point of almost internalizing it. But I would say that he has, if anything, a burn secondary, if you think about what he was like as a child or as a young person before the events of the TV show. So I'm not quite sure to the extent which he can have burn secondaries, but that's the impression that I get. I would have almost seen him as a young Slytherin though, uh, having a young Slytherin secondary that man manifested in, in pranks and behaving differently around various parts of the court and family. Okay, that makes sense. So then you say, if you say let's say he's a, a pure Slytherin who has learned to model a Ravenclaw secondary very hard. I would say, and I would say also, okay, I have feelings about the Zanatos Gambit trope. Like, I don't ever find it super believable that somebody has plotted out a chessboard, like, 50 moves in advance with like three alternate moves at every position on the board. See, I don't find it believable, but I find it incredibly satisfying in fiction. <laughs> that, that is fair. But like some of the things that happen later on in the show, I'm just like, you are, you are up shit creek without a paddle and you are improvising like hell. I think that's fair, but at the same time you get a sense that he has thought about what he would do in that situation. It's possible. It's possible. Look, I, I think it's the thing. I like that kind of fiction where you have somebody who does know or at least has considered all the moves and all the board. Like, you know, one of my favourite movies in terms of everything going the way it should is, I think it's Ocean's 13, where things mm -hmm. seem to be going wrong. And a few things come up and go wrong throughout the day, but essentially it's just a clockwork heist unfolding in front of your eyes and you just have to sit back and enjoy it. And, so, and I think people would argue that there's no tension, you know, things have to go wrong, people actually have to be challenged, but honestly I really quite enjoy sitting back and watching the clockwork and enjoying that the mastermind's plan is taking place in front of me. I find that very satisfying. Yeah, it's kind of competence porn. It is. It really is. Yeah. That, I mean, that's fair. And I feel also that in those circumstances, the drama is in the presentation of it to the viewer or reader. Yeah, right? absolutely. You have to have them thinking that something's going wrong. Yes. And then you get this little glow of, oh, okay, when it was turns out to be something that was actually planned for or allowed for all along. That's fair. And you definitely do get that in Nirvana in Fire. So that's fine. Yeah. I will accept that. So I'm going to, to pick us up on a question sent in by one of my agent siblings, Emily Tesh. A hot take, I think she called it. No, no, no. I was the one who called it a hot take. <laughs> Aha. 
if after this many thousands of years, I'd call it lukewarm. Emily Tesh, um, who is at Emily Tesh UK on Twitter, submitted that she would call Julius Caesar an example of a disaster bisexual, which I have questions. Is that canonical, friends? Hmm. Because I know that Emily is a classics teacher, so there is a chance that this is canonical. Julius Caesar being we canonically bisexual? Through with an episode about what is history and what is true and what is the canon in history. Are we prepared to accept her premise for the purpose of discussing him as a disaster bisexual? Here's the other thing. When we talk about historical bisexuals, we have to sort of call attention to the fact that sexuality as an identity is a fairly recent term. So for all bisexual, for everyone basically pre-1900s, no, they're not because they wouldn't have had those kinds of identity <laughs> markers. Like, no, sure, 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 sure. But like, let's 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 take it as read that we are talking about. Sorry, not to be a pedant on our like fun. Let's take it as read that we are talking about. Would we classify their behavior as indicative of bisexuality today? Did he fuck boys? I don't know. You guys are the history people. I mean, he was a Roman, so probably like the Romans were fucking boys all over the place, right? I, yeah. Oh, were they? <laughs> I mean, they're Romans. Alex <laughs> like just puts that out there. She's just like, well, obviously they were. We should, okay. We have a very dear friend whose name is Tim, who hangs out in our Slack chat with us. And Tim is a professor of Roman history. So we can go and ask Tim whether the Romans were indeed fucking boys all over the place. And Tim will probably tell us. We will put it in the episode notes, dear listeners, so that you are aware whether or not Julius Caesar canonically Dear Tim, boys. <laughs> did Julius Caesar canonically <laughs> fuck boys? Please tell us. Thank you. Love us. But also, I mean, this brings up a great point, which we kind of didn't get time to go into on the bisexuals episode, which was our favorite historical bisexuals. Which... Yes, I was so sad that we didn't get to time to talk about this. Because Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great is definitely my favorite historical bisexual because he has my name <laughs> i i think he would he would say that differently what do you mean how so i think that he would say that you have his name we have each other's name we have the same name like one of the things that i really love is awesome badass historical people doing cool things and having the same name as me like alexander hamilton who is probably another disaster, disaster bisexual. bisexual yes yeah. is he oh yes. yes okay admit it yes he was <laughs> freya has written the fan fiction about it Bye. Okay, look, let's not take my fanfiction as being entirely a canonical interpretation, but those letters that we were talking about, I would argue you can uh -huh. take those as a fairly good canon evidence. Uh-huh. And I mean, soldier's gonna soldier. Soldier's gonna soldier. Who's your favorite historical disaster bisexual, Macy? I literally just said Alexander the Great, friend. I got there first. I was trying to set you up to talk about, what's her name? Julie Dobigny? Yes, that one. Um, oh, what was the, the other one as well? But no, Julie Dobigny, that was, she was the one who went around uh, sneaking into convents so she could shag the nuns. Yes. Which, you know, life goals. Yeah. And she also, like, won sword fights and sang in operas and generally was a disaster all over the place. Yes. She wasn't the same one who was the spy, was she? There was the woman. No. I'm not sure. I might be thinking of a different one. Josephine Baker. Josephine Baker was the singer and uh, I believe also, was she the lover of Frida Kahlo at one point? 
and a spy in World War II while being a singer and they didn't suspect her because she was too beautiful and thus must obviously be stupid. So she's definitely more of the uh, a disaster befalling everyone else kind of disaster bisexual. Because it sounds like she had her shit together fairly well. She really did have her shit together, but I would also argue potentially that she was a bit of a chaos bisexual. I suppose so. Julie Daubigny, definitely chaos bisexual. I think if you're breaking into a convent to shag an apprentice nun and then you possibly burn it down on your way out. Oh yeah. That, that's chaos. Okay, if you set anything on fire, that automatically qualifies you for chaos bisexual. I will grant that. Like, I, that's the I think rules. I'm okay with that as a rule. I It's been many years since I set things on fire. Did you once set things on fire? Missing? Listen, I was using a magnifying glass. I was. Does this have anything to do with your misspent youth as a frozen meat salesman? Actually, no. Actually, no. This was my misspent youth as a bored Northern English uh, rural child sneaking around riverbeds attempting to set fire to leaves. <laughs> See, in an Australian childhood, you learn to set fires in a controlled environment as a Cub Scout, and then you never do it again because there's a total fire ban because of bushfires, <laughs> as we have established. I was wondering how long it would fucking take Freya to mention bushfires in this episode, which is a recap of all our previous episodes. I am fighting really, really hard not to make a lesbian joke. Okay, why would, why you, would you do that? that? Bushfires? No? Oh. Yes, okay, well done. <laughs> anyway. Shall we move along? <laughs> uh, listen, friends, I gave you an out. Freya. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the next question. So, Tumblr user, a few real thoughts. Oh, is that how asked? you pronounce that? Yeah. <laughs> what were you thinking? A real. A real. <laughs> A few real thoughts <laughs> asks Freya, who are some of your favourite arrogant asshole lieges? So this is obviously looking back at our fealty episode where I said that I quite like the liege part of the equation to maybe not be particularly humble because I just like arrogant asshole characters essentially. And well, look, when I said it, I think I was probably thinking most of all of Francis Crawford of Lymond of the Lyman Chronicles. And then I guess as a subset of that particular fictional archetype genealogy of Laurent from Captive Prince. I was, well, was going to say it. If you didn't say it, I was going to say it. I was like, no, I'm sitting here thinking like, I disagree, Freya. I don't think you were thinking of this. I think you were thinking of Laurent from Captive Prince because you're always thinking of Laurent from Captive Prince. No, 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 no. Well, I mean, that, that is true. <laughs> that is not true. Sometimes she's thinking of Damon from Captive Prince. That's accurate <laughs> that is accurate but thinking about them they say they are kind of smooshed together i mean uh lymond and laurent in my head because one of them is so obviously uh, an homage to the other and i think it's mostly the kind of they're this slightly unrealistically competent good at everything kind of person who's the people who follow them they are extremely good at inspiring loyalty but the people who follow them kind of recognize that they're an asshole and so their loyalty has this grudging well we're following him because he's amazing but we can recognize that he's kind of a dick at the same time although Lyman has this problem where literally about 70 percent of the people of both genders who run into him fall in love with him and then he has to spend <laughs> a lot of time and energy trying to discourage them which can range from insulting them completely ignoring them or fleeing to russia depending <laughs> on where you are in the book excellent Ah, oh, Freya, if you make me read these books, I will not forgive you. I'll get there eventually. I've got I've got time to work on you. Oh no. No. Yes. It's not these okay. six 
eight hundred plus page oh books. Oh my god! Yeah, Freya, Freya, why? Are they because gay? They're amazing, Macy. Yeah, Are is there actually is there gay? kissing? Is there, there is, is there kissing. gay kissing is, in this book? There is no gay kissing, but there are a lot of very sad, floppy bisexuals <laughs> who are following Lyman around being sad and floppy while he awkwardly how, attempts to how dissuade them. How do you them. have six times 800 words worth of him being followed by floppy bisexuals and yet no kissing? Well, there's about, there's multiple ones per book. It's there's There's some kissing, but I think if you're looking, if you're wanting to read it for gay kissing... You're going to be disappointed. That's okay. That's fair. That's fair. I have a question. Do you think that Jadal from Nine Fox Gambit fits this trope? Mm, possibly a little bit. I'm just trying to think about how he's seen by the people around him. It's been a little while since I read the first book. I think there's an element of that. There's an element of this respect, of this sense that, you know, everyone knows that he's a very useful and very competent general. But for the most part, it doesn't seem like it's a liege relationship. It seems like it's more of a, we recognise he's very competent and he makes a good tool. But I'm actually thinking, I don't know if you've got to Raven Stratagem yet? I have, but it has been a while. So in Raven Stratagem, he's much more treated as a liege and he has this loyalty relationship with one of the captains and I really love it because it's tortured and horrible. And That's I true. Remember them? Yes, yes, no, I would agree that that falls into the same category. She, you, yeah, she decides like she's going to be loyal to him, even though it's definitely going to cost her her life. Yes, and he's definitely an arrogant asshole, Liege, and that, yes, no, I'm convinced that falls, that falls except, into that category. Except, except there's identity fuckery, and was it Cheris the whole time? I love identity fuckery so much. Uh, and Alex, we'll get you there. We will get you to these books. I, I imagine and you will. Just, shh, don't and tell then, her this in them. There's, there is there is only beautiful matter. <laughs> shall we shall we move along to the next category? <laughs> yes. All right. So the next thing that we're talking about, we have a little section here about tropes. The first question that we have is from Steve, who is at Mama Joe's Refuge on Twitter, who says, "So I'm a fan of the pragmatic hero. See Ursula Vernon's Summer in Orcus or Jackalope Wives. Also her works as T Kingfisher." such as Toadworks, to name a few, because I love down-to-earth heroes just trying to do their jobs. What's your favorite hero trope and why? Ooh, so I really love the grumpy hero who just wants you all to go the fuck away. Yeah. What's your favorite example? I mean, the example that immediately pops to mind, but is definitely not my favorite example, is Shrek. <laughs> It's true. Okay, and, good. And it well. very much is a hero trope if you're thinking about that classic hero's journey of there has to be the moment of him or her rejecting their destiny. Well, but I don't think it's quite the same because I'm talking about someone who kind of remains curmudgeonly throughout. I'm thinking also of some of Sam the... Sam Vimes. Uh, yes. Yes. There we go. That's a much better one. Oh, and kind of some of... Sometimes the witches, right? Yeah. Sometimes mm. Tiffany... Tiffany really would have rather than everybody get along and her world just work correctly. She isn't in it for the adventure. She just wants to fix it and go back home to make her cheese. That's true. Yeah. Pratchett is very good at that kind of hero. I think my favourite kind of hero is definitely the Machiavellian, obviously, as you have probably realised <laughs> by now. You would say that. You would say hero? that. Hero? Yep. Hero, though? Okay. Give me one. Who, who is a Machiavellian hero? As opposed to... Anti-heroes or um, masterminds? Who I think a, I think a mastermind is a different. Oh, thing okay. So maybe I'm coming at this from the wrong direction. All right, I need to have a think then. So I was gonna say, 
See, now I'm thinking about it <laughs> because like I am also kind of into those anti-heroes and mastermind types. I really like heroes whose strength lies in brains rather than brawn. Mm-hmm. So, for example, Miles Verkozigan yes. or uh, Moist von Lipvig, if we're talking about Discworld, uh, we might as well talk about all of Discworld. Yes. I, I also really like heroes who start out doing something for selfish reasons, hmm. but then kind of discover their place in something greater than themselves and discover honest and selfless reasons for doing things. And I am thinking specifically of Moist von Lipvig in this, in this case. Um, I also really like heroes who recognize their own shortcomings and weaknesses mm-hmm. and who value and rely on other people around them to bolster them mm-hmm. because we're stronger in groups. And so I, I really like heroes who recognize and appreciate and value their community. Yeah, that makes sense. Team dad. So I think I think I would I would yeah. definitely agree Team on parent. the intellectual uh, and you know brains rather than brawn. I think that's probably where I was coming from with the Machiavellian thing. I also have a soft spot for the hero who is maybe even a little bit the opposite of the curmudgeonly one, the one who is just doing it for shits and giggles essentially. So um, I'm thinking about like Lord Peter Whimsey from the Dorothy Sayers uh, books, who is essentially being a detective because it's a fun thing that he enjoys doing. It's not his job. He's independently wealthy. He just kind of bumbles around and picks up new hobbies and, you know, is very competent <laughs> about things, but he could stop it at any time. He just wanders around stumbling across murders and he's very enjoyable. And I think that interacts in fun ways with, I'm thinking of uh, Bertie in Worcester and Jeeves, mm. right? Uh, when the hero isn't even a hero, they're not even bumbling about trying to be a hero. They're just bumbling about accidentally being a hero. Well, I mean, the, the point is that Jeeves is the hero of those books. Yes. Yes. And I think he's not necessarily an unwilling one. I guess he's sort of a slightly a practical and competent one in the same way that Tiffany is. Yes. He's kind of exasperated. I do like an exasperated hero. That's true. You know, now that I'm thinking about it, I also like the hero who is, I guess we could kind of consider him a a loyal retainer going back to the, the fealty thing, except his liege is kind of an abstract so I'm thinking of like Horatio Hornblower, mm. who is an amazing hero and is in service and extremely loyal. And his loyalty is more to like the whole sort of structure. Like yes. he believes in this abstract of England and and the Navy and yes. and... Uh, maritime heroism. There's this great moment in the first Temeraire book, right, where yes. um, Captain Lawrence basically destroys the rest of his life, as far as he is concerned, by accepting this dragon. He's the captain of a ship, he's up and coming, he's got this great career ahead of him, and he has to take the dragon because the country needs him to take the dragon and go into the air yes. service, and so he does. And everyone around him just looks on horrified, but they can't say anything because it's the right thing to do. And none of them were brave enough. Yes. And none of them were worthy. Lawrence is an amazing example of this as well. I would argue that Sam Vimes is also a hero who has a higher purpose, except his is the abstract of justice. And he's somebody who is constantly fighting his own nature in the service of justice and also accepting positions and accolades 
and the things that he has to do in his life that he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to be a duke. He doesn't want to be a diplomat. He'd rather just be a plain old cop walking around the streets because he recognizes it's the best thing for the city. And so he and the patrician are in this balanced relationship of both of them putting the city first in very different ways. I love that. Now I'm trying to think of like how Buffy treats being a hero. I think it's a similar, if I, I have to do it because there's no one else. And the entire series is about her ambivalent relationship with that idea, I think. Yes, because that's so rare that you do get that from a female character. And Xena has a very different approach to being a hero. She's not really like Peter Whimsy. She isn't doing it for the lulls, but she isn't really doing it on purpose either. She's like a recovered warlord <laughs> who's just kind of bopping around punching things. Very enjoyable. As one does. We have we have now mentioned so many different hero tropes. I think that we could, you know, do a whole episode <laughs> about this, honestly. Well, let's move on to the next so one. So the next one was from one that I can even pronounce. Eyes closed, head first, can't lose on Tumblr asks, discussion topic, favorite and least favorite fanfic tropes. Well, I think I'm going to go first here. I was thinking about this and, you know, if you can separate it out from even sort of romantic tropes, I think one of my favourite is definitely that identity fuckery we were talking about before, or identity yes. porn. So anything to do with secret identities or people falling in love with someone without knowing that it's them, uh, either through disguise or, you know, alter egos or writing, anything like that. I love identity porn in fanfic especially. And for my least favourites... I'm going to have to go with Mpreg and pregnancy and essentially Kidvik. I, I just don't care. It's not for me. <laughs> yeah, I I agree. Like pregnancy Kidvik also not really my thing. And partially it's because like on a personal level, pregnancy kind of squicks me out and I don't ever want to be pregnant myself. So reading about it kind of gets in my own head and eh. if people are pregnant around me, that's different. But like, when I'm reading a thing, like I tend to identify very strongly mm -hmm. with the characters, and then it is just like, nah, not for me, not for me. Thanks, though. See, for me, it fits into the this is something I do at work. Ah, I'm really bored. I don't want to. I won't want to do more. It's why I don't like hook, like um sick, pick as well. Like you know, oh, this character's sick, and their their loved one is taking care of them and bringing them soup, and yeah. it's a a really nice warm kind of like I don't care. That's <laughs> <laughs> I deal with sick I deal with sick people all day. I deal with a lot of pregnant people. I know a lot about pregnancy. Yeah. Every time it appears in fanfic I'm either like, well that's entirely wrong or I'm just bored. That's so that's not very for me. Fair. I would say that my favorite trope would be slow burn romance because I I really mm -hmm. just love to suffer for five hundred pages and then they kiss at the end. <laughs> I, at some point, at some point, I will send you my book. <laughs> the other one. Uh, yes, I think, hmm. So I basically uh, hate self-examination and, like, thinking about why I like things. I just read a lot of really, really long fic. Things I like, I really enjoy competence porn, which I think we mentioned a bit earlier. So I really love fanfic where the characters get to be shockingly good at things and have others react to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah and be impressed and like admiring of them. I have which... a really good rec for you, Macy. I'll, I'll talk about it later. I, I, why? We shall find out if I've already read it. I'm excited. You may have, yes. I may have. I've read a lot of things. <laughs> Other things I enjoy, political complicated fic, like when a fanfic author has spent the time to kind of excavate the foundations of a canon and maybe put 
stronger foundations down there. There's this amazing, ridiculously long fanfic in the Avatar The Last Airbender fandom called Embers, which I don't know if either of you have encountered. Uh, no. Nope. So I can't even describe it, but it basically ends with Prince Zuko uh, and a ragtag crew of Fire Nation escapees setting up shop in an abandoned was it an abandoned volcanic crater as the armies of the dead approach them and they all try to fight free of this poisonous loyalty that the whole fire nation has been enchanted under for the last hundred years which is why they're having the war and it kind of sneaks up on you and by the time you get to the end this all makes sense and i'm like how did you do this vathara how very good so what about least favorite i i will read almost anything um what about things that bore you friend i've read all of the wheel of time <laughs> You're difficult to bore. Okay. Good to know. Good to know. Let's let's move on to the next question. An anonymous submission on Tumblr asks found families because I adore them in pretty much every format and would love to hear the opinions you three have regarding them. So before I open this up for questions, let's keep it brief because we all have extremely strong quest or extremely strong opinions on found families and we could probably do an entire episode about it. So let's keep it brief. <laughs> That's my feelings. Definitely in favor. Yes. Yes, very much. Very Listen. yes. Very strong yes. Yes. I have I'm trying trying to think of how many times I've written found families, and I think I write them pretty much every time. It's like um Kate Elliott books. You will always find somehow an arranged marriage in Kate Elliott books or a forced marriage. Every single book, I promise Ooh. you. Alexandra Roland books. You will find a found family. Yeah, yeah. I Okay, here's the thing, though. Like, it's not quite found families the way that I do it. My specific approach or attitude towards this trope is, and this is something that I have realized about myself for probably like 10 years now, is that I have this obsession with the idea of home. And mm. I so over and over and over again, since basically I have started writing, I have noticed that I always come back to this trope of characters losing their home and finding a new home. Well, first they lose mm -hmm. their home and they're trying to get back to it. And then at some point they realize that they can't get back to it. And then at that point they have to move on and find out a new definition of home. And so I have I have done this in every book I have ever written. And I'm not really sure why. It's just one of those things that is deep, deep, deep stuck in my head. I'm you. You can't see the face I'm making right now, but Freya probably knows why. But uh, that the, you keep naming things that are in the book that I haven't sent you. Well, good. Um, <laughs> I the thing I really love is actually almost like extremely close platonic friendships, right? Where they. I don't even know if family is the word, but like they are part of your life and your structure and people as home. I like slow burn found family, I think. Like I really mm. like watching a really complicated series of interpersonal dynamics forming and the ways in which you can try and draw together as a cohesive group. We've got a lot of very leverage. different people. I'm sorry, did you say leverage? <laughs> leverage. <laughs> yes. So leverage. And I'm also thinking of Farscape. Oh my god, Farscape! Yeah, so I think this works really well in a TV format because you've got the luxury of time to yeah. sort of have quite a large ensemble cast. You can show a lot of little scenes between different characters and sort of pair them off in ways that they haven't been paired off before. 
I like the messiness of that, and I think it's one of the reasons I like writing triad relationships as well, is that every arm and every interpersonal bit is a bit different, and each one affects the entire network in a different way. And it's always messy and crunchy, but you end up with a functioning family, in a sense. And I like watching that happen. So you know what that made me think of? Well, two things. First of all is that I think it's really cool that a TV show, when you have a ton of people in there, the amount of information you can get through from the actor's body language compared to how much time that would take you to do on the page is just amazing, mm. right? It's such a high bandwidth communication vector of, of feelings, which we are fans of feelings. But you also made me think of, have either of you played or watched anybody else play the either of the big EA uh, RPGs, either Dragon Age or Mass Effect? Nope. Uh, no, but I have now read every single page of the well, <laughs> Dorian Ironfall listing on AO3, so... <laughs> oh, Alex. Um, I finished it and then I started over at page one, I'm sorry. Alex? Alex? Yes, do we have to institute? Do, do I have to install a blocker on your computer? No. Uh-huh. Anyway, I had a point, I think, which was that in the games, one of the really cool things, the mechanic is that you gather a bunch of people around you to fight with you and be on your team, uh, of whom can be, you know, Iron Bull. And when you go into each quest, you pick a subset of them to take with you. And they will kind of follow you around like ducklings. And while you are doing important gamely things, like, I don't know, punching a wishing well repeatedly, they will have side conversations with each other that you can just listen to. Yes. And it's amazing, and I love it. And it's exactly that kind of like you're building a team, and they have interactions and relationships that have nothing to do with you. Yes. See, that's very interesting to me, because one of the books that I'm outlining at the moment is essentially a leverage-type heist story where you have a group of people coming together, and I'm working out how to do that when I'm using a single point of view character. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it I think is just going to have to be observation and overhearing and existing mm -hmm. in the same place as all of the other weird little, you know, side relationships happening because I need to show them all developing and I've only got one person's head from which to do it. <laughs> if you need uh, some insight about this, I got you, girl. <laughs> I, I have done this a couple times. I have, I have done this rodeo a couple times. Uh, yeah. Shall we, shall, we, shall we curtail our feelings and yeah. move on to the next question? Yes, because the next question is so good and also kind of ties in with found families. So Ria314 on Twitter asks, now that you've been doing the podcast for 10 episodes, congratulations. Thank you, Ria. Have you noticed the podcast affecting your own writing? You all have great brains and come up with such cool ideas. Has tossing these topics around between you and verbalizing your ideas had any impact on how you approach your own writing? So listeners, brace yourself because it's going to get real squishy and loving <laughs> up in here. I don't think that the podcast specifically has affected my own writing as much. It's more knowing the two of you that has affected my writing because one, I completely love both of you. And two, we all have very similar kinds of brains and we've mm -hmm. kind of fallen into this nice little supportive group of beta reading each other's work and supporting each other's writing and each of us has strengths and weaknesses and our weaknesses are supported by at least one other person's strength in this little <laughs> absolutely group of of wonderfulness that we have going here so it's more like just 
our, our beautiful friendship. <laughs> but here's the other thing, though. I think that the conversations that we're having in this podcast, the reason that we started this podcast was that we were having these types of conversations anyway. Yes. And they were getting ridiculous. And I have bad wrists and I'm not meant to be typing more than a certain amount per day. And I was using up all of my typing allowance, having <laughs> conversations with you two on the Slack. And then I couldn't write. And I'm like, look, we should just, why don't we just talk? We could record yes, that. And, and wasn't I the one who first said? Probably. Well, I think I was. Because mm -hmm. like my approach to it was like, we're having these amazing conversations. Let's have these conversations in front of other people like we're spending so much time on having these great conversations let's leverage it for like self-promotional purposes <laughs> but also because that's what a, that's what a good podcast is it's that you yeah. know people sitting around chatting about stuff that you find interesting and obviously our ideal audience are the people who listen to it and think you know this sounds like a fun conversation that if it was happening at a bar or at a con or something i would like to sit down and join in Yes, and I think yes, we are actually. doing this, though, for a higher cause, which is the the respect of fanfic and the Very, yes. love of the craft of fanfic and the respect for the artists. And um, I know that Rhea is a podficker as well. So mm. I know that they're very familiar with, with this, the love of art and how much time and effort you will put into these things. <laughs> Bring it back to the question, though. I yes. think I, I absolutely agree that we're, we've got a wonderful balance of being able to sometimes verbalize things in a new way or a complementary way so when i finish my current novel draft i'm going to throw it at you two and say please fix my plot please fix my plot yes. and alex has in her turn thrown things at me and said please fix the romance and it's just <laughs> so nice to be able to know that you've got people who you can do that and you'll because the brains are just similar enough they're going to come up with things that you will go, yes, absolutely, that's how it should have been. Yeah, and we, we kind of also speak the same language, if that makes right. sense. Mm. We are three-way drift compatible. Yes. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> but I can still remember, like, there, there's these little pieces that do come out in the podcast. Um, like, back way back in the Apocalypse episode, Freya said something about, listen, I still love that episode, even if both of you hate pregnancy, unless that was a terrible <laughs> book for me to choose. Anyway. Sorry. I, I remember a thing Freya said about immediate apocalypse fiction as a portal fantasy. And I still think about that because that was such a cool like idea that I would never have come up with. So I definitely think there are like little sprinkles of that throughout that do come up in things I'm thinking about and how I'm thinking about what I want to write. But I also found, oddly enough, that doing this podcast and particularly preparing for this podcast and coming up for ideas, made me far more confident about applying to be on panels. Oh, yeah. Because this is totally just a weekly panel we host. Yeah. You're, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right, yes. Except yeah. I suspect that most panels have a little bit less lubricant. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Some of the panels that I've seen and all been on. I, I, that's true. You're, you, have, you have professional uses for that. Uh, no, I agree. I think it's it makes you more aware. When I've been reading books recently I've been I think it's really honed my pattern recognition brain mm -hmm. and made me think a little bit more deliberately about tropes and patterns because I'm always thinking is this something we could talk about would this fit into a category of something that we have planned and because we're always discussing what works for us and what stands out it's like an intensive course in acknowledging what works and what doesn't work in reading mm -hmm. as a writer and it's fun and it's also really fun <laughs> 
We, we highly recommend starting a podcast with your friends, guys. It's a really good, good thing to do. It's a great choice. And you can't have Alex. We're keeping her. She does all the editing. We would die. Oh, I mean, you can't have Freya either. She does most of the bullet point. That's like, true. Reorganizing yep. on the day that it happens. And you, and you can't have Macy because she's the only one of us who sounds proper. <laughs> <laughs> we have such a wonderful symbiotic relationship. Also, like, I really love... Just to go on with the mutual appreciation society thing that we have going on here. Like, I love that we each, like, I think the division of labor is pretty fair and, and evenly balanced. And it's just cool. I'm having it a good time. Cool. It is Are cool. you guys having a good time? Yes. Having a very good time. I'm going to arbitrarily then jump ahead a fair bit because I spotted a question that I would love to talk about next. An anonymous ask from Tumblr which is, what are your thoughts on literary merit? As in, what constitutes having deep literary merit, trademark? And also as in, how much does deep literary merit, trademark, actually matter at all? This is an amazing question, and I think it's also so important for us to talk about, because... Because it's a dick joke. Yes. <laughs> I'm just like staring off into space. I was legitimately trying to have a serious conversation. Oh my god, Macy, you sound like a witch. She does. Listen, if you two make me cry again. God. Anyway. I say I appreciate the capitalization and the trademark sign because I really feel that this listener has recognized the, I guess, concurrent sarcasm and deep sincerity that we have when we say the words deep literary merit real question though real question what do we mean by <laughs> deep literary merit because i mean we we talked about this a little bit with one of the previous questions wanting to sort of honor the amazing art that we consider fan fiction to be but how do we how do we decide what is deep literary merit i mean both in a sarcastic sense and in a absolutely sincere sense so i think to me there are fanfic that i would absolutely hold up next to published works of fiction that have won awards and say no you should read this instead of that there are fanfic that does more cool things i would absolutely wreck uh written by the victors to people who have never read fanfic and i will just tell them to hold their nose through the blowjob like i hold my nose through the rape scenes because deal with yeah. it deep literary merit we we're being sarcastic but we're also not i'm i'm mostly poking fun at the entire concept of literature yes like fuck that who said that there gets to be a decider as to what is literary and what is not i think this is something we find Freya in Romance Land, myself in YA Land, and even Alex over in Fantasy yeah. Land being slightly more significant, that our genres get poo-pooed upon even as published works sometimes. Oh yeah. Yes, and I think one of the things we're saying when it comes to merit is especially the, the fact that we're dividing our episodes by themes, when we're holding something up as an example, as a tentpole, or even just bringing it up in conversation, we're saying here is something that does one thing very well nothing in literature can do everything very mm. well and nothing has to do everything very well with holding things up and saying here is an example of something that is done well let's discuss why it works and if that's mm -hmm. feelings if that's world building if that's plot structure no matter what it is it is something that has merit because it has elicited a response in us that makes us just pause and sit back and go 
that was amazing. How did they do that? How can I do that? Yes, and I, I think that I would even go so far as to say, I would say that almost everything has, I, I, I'm agreeing with you here, almost everything has some literary merit just because someone spent time and energy and effort mm. and caring on it. And I think that that deserves to be honored and respected and loved in return. And also gently, affectionately mocked. Occasionally, yes. <laughs> Yeah. Like, I feel like those go hands in hand. That's Maybe I'm just being very British, but, you know, you mock the things you love yeah. Oh, yeah. gently and lovingly. That's an Australian thing as well. And speaking of things and people we love. Yes, yeah, so for our next question, uh, one of our beloved scribes, Magali, sent in some questions for us. So the first question is, when you were talking about the Pern books in the Taxonomies episode, I was forced to remember reading them as an adult and them really not holding up. What childhood favourite of yours has been most disappointing as an adult? And is there another you'd recommend in its place? Let's just talk about disappointments, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about being disappointments to our darling scribe. The one that I have would be T.A. Barron's Lost Years of Merlin series, because I read that when I was probably like 12 or 13 and thought that it was amazing and wonderful. And it's this this series of books about Merlin when he was a teenager and young adult going to Avalon and having adventures. And it was fantastic. And then I read it again when I was 18 or 19 and was shocked and disappointed because the writing was kind of not great. <laughs> oh. Yeah. And there was probably some other stuff that went over my head like I don't remember great treatment of women in those books but I don't remember it clearly enough to say that for sure but at the time when I was 18 19 and reread it the thing that I noticed was oh my god this is it just sounds shitty the prose Legit. the prose just was not something that was satisfying for me I think it is the redemption of Alphalus by David and Lee Eddings so I was very into the Eddings books when I was about, yeah, about same age, 13, 14. And this one I remembered very fondly because it's a standalone uh, and it's about mm. a lot of things I like. So it's kind of a heist narrative. It's got some found family in it. It's got an interesting magic system. But again, I went back to it and I remember I wrote a deeply distressed Goodreads review about it oh. <laughs> because I just, I just couldn't deal with the sort of one note Whedon-esque banter like everybody has the same voice mm. the use of variations on the word said was just <laughs> astronomical like there was three pages in there there was not a single word said everybody blurted or exclaimed or smirked oh. or cried and oh it just grated on my nerves but and i think most of all it was just the deep deep heteronormativity of headings mm. i just kept coming at it as a queer adult, I was just like, no, can't deal with this. I don't care. Too many straights. Go away. I mean, for me, it's always Pern. I read every book that Anne McCaffrey wrote, including the Acorno one. Oh, dear. Oh, sweet Ooh. love. All, did you know there were like 13 of them and it started going to like her kids' lives? Acorno, space unicorn princess. Yeah. Anyway, but like I love Pern particularly because of the dragons, because I wanted a psychic best friend who always had to love me only forever. <laughs> Real. <laughs> big mood. Big, big mood. I mean, like, and we're going, I know we're going to do um, an episode at some point on magical horse books. <sighs> 
That's going to be my entire contribution to that episode. It's just going to be you guys talking and me occasionally sighing Sorry. deeply. <laughs> but um, I would say I have replaced, or I would, if, if you miss Pern, go read Temeraire instead. Oh, yeah. Yep, fair. The next question that we have from our magnificent Magali is what do you think is the most fun part of world building? All of it. All of it. Yep. Every I every mean, yes. part of it. All parts is good. All good. <laughs> all very yes. More seriously, like I really love map making. I find it both sort of a challenging brain exercise, like a puzzle, because you have to figure out where you're because I do it in a really nerd way is why. <laughs> because I have no life and I'm a trash fire. I when I sit down to make a map, I don't just like draw continents. I'm like, okay. Where are my tectonic plates? And if I put a continent here, then what happens to the ocean currents? And also I read like four Wikipedia articles about wind direction, like prevailing winds and- Coyotes like, effects. Uh, yeah. And biomes and the magnetosphere, all sorts of shit, right? And how, and I spent a lot, a lot, a lot of time trying to figure out how it would affect the tides if there were two moons because it's something that incredibly bothers me in fantasy novels is when there's more than one moon but the tides are completely normal or not mentioned at all because if you have this is two, true i've seen your charts you've seen my chart you have charts i have charts about it yes <laughs> if you have more than one moon when the two moons are both full at the same time, you're going to have huge tides and something is going to get swamped and your coastal cities are going to have to have some kind of way of dealing with that. Other things that I love in world building are coming up with swear words and sexual taboos and especially gender stuff. Because if mm -hmm. you are just doing your normal gender binary every fucking time, what are you even doing? Like get creative with it get weird with it that's all i have to say oh. god I, I cannot stand the idea of doing maps i think i have no visual <laughs> spatial sense you. i will do your map for you good excellent because i have no fucking sense of direction or visual spatial sense and i just don't care like i'm gonna invent some places in this city and maybe there's a river and stuff but the idea of having to work out how long it takes to get from one place so to good. another. Oh, and, it's the best oh, part. Oh, God, no. no I don't love care. it. No. Don't care. Alex, you can do all of our maps. So, yep. I will do I will yes, do that. This goes back it. to that thing that we were talking about earlier with like being each other's beta readers and influencers and, you know, supporting each other's strengths because like I'm the map person. So I will make all your maps. <laughs> And all right. in return, Macy will just yep. fix all of my small plot issues. So I think when it comes to world building, my favorite thing is digging into the nitty gritty of how things differ in a society. So, for example, if you, you come up with your basic sort of class system or your religious system, but then I really like coming up with those broad strokes and then pausing and saying, okay, but in any society, you're going to have differences in how religious mm -hmm. people are and to what extent they observe religious mm -hmm. holidays, how superstitious people are, and how has that changed? Like what kind of cultural shift is there currently and which way is the trend going? Is there currently a trend towards being less religious or more religious? And does that differ depending on your class or your upbringing or where you are? So, you know, once you come up with your magic system, is there then a difference between how someone who is strong with magic might get a bit lazy with the rules but that wouldn't matter or is there going to be ways that people have basically MacGyvered mm -hmm. the magical system because of their own personalities 
that there's always going to be a huge amount of interpersonal difference once you've come up with these things. Yes. And I think an example of this, there is a pop culture critic called Gavia Baker-Whitelaw, who is a fandomer and has her own podcast as well. Uh, and she writes a lot about costume design in movies. And one of her examples of good costume design done well is the movie Alien, because it is a military group of people who are all wearing more or less the same basic uniform. Like, they have to wear the same thing. But their personalities are so strongly defined by the ways in which they have adapted or deviated from the basic uniform. And for me, that's the most fun part of world building is saying, okay, once you've put the uniform on, once you've decided the basic rules of your society, what is each character doing that is making it their own and how are they different from everyone else around them? That's, that's my favourite. I love that too. I, I think that's really fun. And I think that it, it really shows in your writing, Freya, like the, it makes the people much more human. Right, even in these strange worlds, we shove them into. Um, everybody has a favorite football team, even if you know it's Quidditch. <laughs> yeah, and the thing that I love doing the most is actually like the physics level magic. What are the rules of magic, and then how does that break societies? Where are the rough edges between the cogs that grind people to dust? Like if you have a type of magic that privileges one group over another, how does that manifest? Uh, what are the tension points? Who in this world is advantaged and disadvantaged based on, you know, a type of magic that is inborn or a type of magic that is skilled like playing a musical instrument or a type of magic that you can only get if you die young in a particularly poetic way and attract the attention of a spirit who feels like bringing you back. I love that stuff. I, I love forest magic and choir magic and all the weird, cool things you can do if you just say that you want to break the rules. Right. And then kind of building up a society around that, because to me, they are linked, but not dependent on one another. Right. Like just because I've decided that this is a world where you can use biomagic to give yourself wings. I can then make that a futuristic society or I can make that a um, medieval cliff culture that's learned to do this or I can choose different variables. Sorry, computer programming now. Um, <laughs> I just really love getting real inventive with the magic and seeing where the knock-on effects land and how societies might differently manage the same physical magic and what kind of mythos and technique and guild structure or schools spring up in different parts of the world and how is that influenced by the landscape or the culture or the people etc i love it all another of the scribes niharika says hello my serpent friends it's niharika your scribe i have a few <laughs> questions for you guys to possibly discuss we are going to answer two of her questions today what fandom would each of you write themselves into write yourselves into if you were to write a self-insert fic in 2018 in the year of our lord 2018 which fandom would we do a self-insert fic into i can tell i'm a boring grown-up <laughs> because my first instinct is goddamn something with plumbing like you know, no matter how lovely these wonderful medieval inspired fantasy places are i'm just like please somewhere with like hot showers and hygiene and something I could actually live in because I could, <laughs> my brain would just get in the way of inserting myself into something where I wouldn't actually enjoy it, which is possibly not in the spirit of this question. But Have you either way, I think I am going to go... 
Have you considered something sci-fi rather than fantasy? Yeah, it's possible. <laughs> well, this is the thing. The two aspects of this is which would I like to be inserted into and which fandom would I want to write the figure? Oh. And I think those would differ for me. That's fair. But That's fair. I, yeah, but I think taking, taking the first one, I'm going to say Star Trek. Okay. Because there is definitely plumbing aboard a starship <laughs> and I can be a doctor uh, I can have fun hobbies and interact with aliens. Can I can write myself doing almost. I can have air conditioning. I can write myself having weird adventures, solving murder mysteries. Nice. You can do almost anything in the Star Trek universe. So that's, that's me. Good. Uh, my answer would be Freya's book. Ah, yes. And <gasps> the only reason is because there are, well, for one thing, it's a setting that I really like and I love your world building, Freya. But also, what it really there came is, down to... There is some plumbing also. Also, there's some plumbing, yes. What it really came down to was those pastries. Yes! <laughs> the delicious yes. The delicious pastries that everyone has a favorite... Is it okay if I talk about this? Yeah, okay. go for it. So in, in Freya's book, there's this wonderful sort of running joke where there's this particular delicacy, this pastry, and there's bunches of different bakeries that all cook the pastry slightly differently, and everyone in the book has a favorite bakery where they get that pastry and i'm obsessed with this i love it a lot it is essentially my version of hipster melburnians having opinions about croissants <laughs> that's essentially what it is sometime we will bring you to naples and you can get to try the spogliatelli there Ooh. take me take me anywhere and feed me food i mean yeah. the alex roland store, <laughs> the alex roland store. <laughs> i will follow you if you say that there's food at the end of it alex roland will will climb into your windowless van if you offer candy <laughs> uh, listen you wouldn't want to have eaten anything from the back of my van it was all still full. <laughs> <laughs> macy even the profiteroles even the profiteroles <laughs> no oh uh, look i i wouldn't put it past alex she would try and eat a frozen profiterole Actually, I'm, but I have made profiteroles. They're actually pretty easy. And I made like a huge batch of them and then I froze them and then I did eat them frozen. Oh my God. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to write a self-insert fanfic in 2018. Oh, and in what fandom? I'm going to write it in Naruto because of Why? course. Where, where else would you write a self-insert fic than Naruto? Why? Why though? <laughs> because of this. Okay, I can't explain it fully. But um, our dear listeners and both of you should go read a 500,000 word long Jesus. Uh, fanfic oh called, my God. called Dreaming of Sunshine, um, which was the start of the Naruto self-insert fanfic craze that I have read at least several million words worth Lord. of. <laughs> Look, the thing about Naruto as a verse is that it has all of these different villages and all of these different important families with special skills that you can choose to be born into. Right? Sure. That's true. Okay. But I think I mean, I, I mean admittedly written... everything is terrible, but you get superpowers. And you get yeah, to put punch... I've written Naruto fanfic and I think I managed to get myself out of the fandom because I became so depressed what the... in my writing you... and the fact that everything was shit you... for these poor children. You... You literally wrote an apocalypse, Freya. Like, yeah, <laughs> listen, friend. Yeah, but also I wrote all these things about how these poor children were, like, growing up being trained to be warriors, and it was, like, deeply fucking them all up. I mean, yes, there, there is that. Listen, they're ninjas. Elliot Schaefer would agree with me here. I, Elliot Schaefer agreeing <laughs> with you is not really your best argument in life, friend. Hey, I have an idea. Harika <laughs> has another question that she asked us. Who wants to take it? <laughs> all right. Um, so 
The other question that Neharika asked was, what's each of your favorite literary device besides unreliable narrators? And what I have to say in response to that is, why would you need a literary device besides unreliable narrators? Slithering out of the question. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm like, <laughs> I'm happy to be a one-trick pony if that's my trick. No, I've got a better question then for okay. you, Alex. Yeah. Um, would you contend that there are types of unreliable narrators? I mean, we just did a whole episode about the types I of know. unreliable Listen, narrators. I'm doing what one calls. I am setting up a thesis, and you okay. have agreed to this. Thus, yes. what is your favorite type? My favorite type of unreliable narrator. Mm-hmm. I would say probably. I would say probably the unreliable, this is completely predictable. I would say my favorite uh -huh. unreliable narrator is the unreliable narrator who's aware that they're telling a story and aware that they may be slightly unreliable. That's fair. That also and, is predictable. <laughs> yeah. And who may or may not be slightly shaping the story in ways which uh -huh. benefit them or not. This has nothing to do with anything, of course. Freya, how about you? What's your favorite? Um, I'm thinking about a structural literary device. So there's a lot of talk out there about how you shouldn't have a prologue for your mm. books or, you know, people, some people just skip the prologue or, you know, I'm not going to read it. It's usually unnecessary. If you write it, you can usually cut it. But I think both reading and writing, I have a soft spot for the prologue that poses a very interesting question or puts you into a weird scenario and plunges you in, in media res. In such a way that you go, what the fuck is happening? And especially if you then follow it up with a opening scene or chapter one that gives you a scenario that's so different from that, or at least sets you these characters that with you this idea of how did they get there? It's a very effective initial hook, and sometimes it's very transparent, and sometimes it's done in a clumsy way. But I think it's, I think it works really well. It gives you an immediate question, an immediate hook. So that you're always turning the pages about thinking about how did we get to this scenario that you showed me at the beginning? I have to know. That's fair. I, I'm thinking of a YA book I read a while back that was a historical Western with something like Under a Painted Sky that did that really well. And they set you up with the very first scene being like the main character committing a murder. And then we go back to her like in the Wild West just going about her life. And you're like, wait a second, you were just stabbing a man. <laughs> Yeah, I especially love it when it shows you a character doing something that seems what will seem out of character when you're yeah. first introduced to them. And I'm thinking in particular of a book that I've read that was an unpublished book by one of my friends that does this extremely well. Opens with a particular scene where they're discussing something that's happened that one character did. And then as soon as you go back to the start, as it were, and start to learn about the characters, the more you read, the more you're like, but, but they would never do that. How did that happen? What what led to this? And so even before the inciting incident, I suppose, you've got this immense question driving you forward through a book. Nice. Man, the I best. Like is it me or is the best writer perk, like the right to read your friend's books before everybody else? Agree. So agree. good. Oh. Yeah. Anyway, I literary devices. Oh my gosh. My favorite literary device is my Kindle. Gross. <laughs> podcast is cancelled. You're fired. Listen, okay. I am, like, I'm not going to say I am the most pantsing writer ever, but one time I tried to do things on purpose and accidentally gave my main character depression instead. But it doesn't have to be something that you plan if you're thinking about a literary device. An unreliable narrator is not necessarily something that goes hand in hand with planning. 
that's fair. I mean, I love I love making um, characters be incorrect and have to like mm. they're, they're just you're just wrong. Like the thing that you want, your driving want in chapter one is just deeply bad for you and incorrect, and we're going to fix it. Thank you to everyone who submitted questions to us. Yes! This was so much fun. This was incredible. And, 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 and do not forget that we need your answers to the opening questions. That is very correct. Yes. We look forward to hearing those from you as well. Thank you, everyone. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely, extremely deep literary merit. And thanks once again for submitting these amazing questions. This episode was a hell of a lot of fun to record. A quick piece of news, by the way, before I forget, our wonderful scribes have started a Discord chat for fans of the podcast, which launches officially today, June 6th. It's linked in the show notes if you want to check it out. We also have a really exciting topic to talk about in the next episode. Two weeks hence, on June 20th, we'll be discussing economics. No, wait, stop, come back. I swear it's fun. I swear. If you want to prepare in advance, one of the tentpoles for that episode is Freeport, a Gundam Wing fanfic by Maldorer Chant. If you have a friend who's into stuff like that, maybe give them a heads up. In the meantime, feel free to continue the conversation with us. Questions, comments, breathless adulations? Contact us at serpentcast at gmail.com or at serpentcast on Twitter and Tumblr. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to review us on iTunes. And by the way, you always make me smile. <laughs>